Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Good. Um, I don't like talking to you when you're across the pond. I'd rather I'd be talking to you across the table, but this is what we have, right? Right, and we are thankful for technology that lets us do this, are we not? Sure, yeah, that's that's something to be That's a good way for. to look at it, yeah. <laughs> There's a feather in your cap. <laughs> hey, uh, Let's rehearse our three tenets. Absolutely. So uh, first, sacred cows make great barbecue. Well, what does that mean exactly? We will gladly scoff at orthodoxy whenever we wish. That's right, and we will also let our flag fr- fly Proudly, which uh-huh. means... Yeah, we'll, we'll argue vigorously for our point of view as long as we have it. That's right. And then and lastly, finally, the most... Im- <laughs> well, yeah, I keep interrupting you. That's right. Go ahead. Bros before politicos. And that's our most um, talked about one. And I think it's, um, it's really the foundation of what we do. I will disagree with you a lot but it will be second to how much I love you as a brother. Right. Ditto. What are we talking about today? Well, um, Cole, we've had some listener feedback, and I think it's probably a good time for us to to uh, deal with some of that listener feedback and and kind of unpack some of the smart comments and questions that we've uh, that we've had sent our way. Let's tell listeners just for a moment how they can send feedback to us if they'd like. That's a great idea. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, if you look in show notes, you'll find our email address. We also have a Twitter handle. You can email if you if you if you want to email Cole directly or email me directly. We do have a show email that you can email us as well. Um, uh, Or you can you can catch us on the Twitter um, it's funny. Some of the some of the feedback we're going to talk about today are actually people who've grabbed me in the hallway um, on campus and said, "Hey, I want to ask you something." So it comes from comes from a lot of different places. Okay. Um, okay. So the first uh, feedback I'd like for us to uh, wrestle with is a really smart email um, from a listener who brought up a, a something that we missed when we talked about. The, it's the episode of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, this listener brought up, I think, a, a brilliant question, which is, you know, you're talking about citizenship, you're talking about Christianity, but that in some ways we're talking about something else that we didn't bring up, which is the question of what it means to be a states person or, um, you know, a, how does statesmen fit into that context into that milieu or into those definitions that we're talking about. So, you know, there's citizen. Um, that might that might describe me, for example, somebody who doesn't have any power other than my vote. But that's a very different conversation than the experience of someone who does have power, um, who has more than just their vote in the booth, but also has, you know, some... Um, in our case, in our country, has some elected uh, representative function. Yes. So this person, I think, was asking us to think about separating 
what we have been before now combining, we've combined the citizen and the statesman as we've talked about uh, Christianity blending with citizenship. And perhaps it might be useful to talk about not just a Christian citizen, but a Christian statesman or statesperson. Yeah, and I'd like... I would like for you to kind of unpack for us a little bit about how you think about those in terms of definition. I mean, Cole, for those who are listening, Cole actually teaches courses on citizenship. So, um, I, I, you know, I think it'd be valuable for you to kind of, what do you think is the difference between statesman and citizen? Yes. Well, and the courses I teach that pertain to citizenship have their roots in the academic field that I'm trained in, which is rhetoric. And so I, it, it's not so much a political science approach as it is a rhetoric approach, although those two approaches were not divided in all of human history right. in the West. Right. Many times a person who was um, the greatest orator was the person who was lifted up to be a leader in uh, a civilization. And... So that's why uh, I have those classes and great discussions with students and colleagues. I think I'll start by saying that um, a, I'm going to use the term statesman instead of the statesperson, although I fully recognize that a statesman cannot be a male. Okay. Um, is that all right, Scott? Yeah, it sounds weird to say statesperson. <laughs> well, it does. And I, well, I'm not. I don't want to skirt something and be offensive. It's hard for me to say it every time. So I'm just going to say statesman and, and ask you to bear with me. We'll forgive you. But, okay. I think, I think a statesman is a person who, in one way or another, grasps the responsibility of leading a civic body. We often think of... The I'm going to I'll say burden, the burden a person feels or the appeal a person feels towards public service in a leadership role. OK, so a person who seeks office or seeks leadership and does so because he or she feels the attraction to adding value to the to the state organism. I want to be an alderman because I want my section of town to be a better section of town. I want to be a mayor because I want the whole town to be a better town. I want to be a, a state representative or a federal representative because I want to represent people and I want to serve them in such a way that it makes the state whether that state is local or federal, it makes it better. And I, I wrap my hands around the job description and I seek to do it and do it well. That's what I would consider to be an ideal statesman. And in, in our conversation, I think of the faith element and I go all the way back to Rome um, where Quintilian, who we consider to be the first Rhetor slash leader slash Christian, who was all these things, also said, it is necessary to be virtuous. His expression was, 
the a proper rhetor is a good man speaking well. And what good man meant to Quintilian included virtues related to Christianity, whereas people before him, not so. Mm-hmm. So that's a big, long answer to what is a statesman. And I've been describing what I feel an ideal statesman is by definition. But in that case, the statesman is has some form of power. The power of representation in a democracy or neo-democratic state, yes. The pa- yes, the power to, in, uh, to take the constituents' opinions and apply them to the strictures of the state that will go into policy. In that way, that person has power. No, I, the, the reason I think that that's um, really valuable is I think there's room to ask whether a Christian can be a statesman. Wow. What do you mean? That's fascinating. Well, I, I don't agree with the position I'm about to articulate. <laughs> but uh, Which is but so, I, so often here. Yeah, but I want it represented because I think it's, uh, for, for, especially for those of us who are part of the Restoration Movement, this was a part of the conversation in the early 20, 20th century, um, was a question of whether we should be a part of uh, whether we should exercise any power. So the question is, could, can a Christian be a, a representative? Can a, can a Christian uh, effectively follow the New Testament, uh, follow the life that we're called to in the New Testament, and also uh, exert power in the public square? Some of these same people ask questions about whether Christians can be soldiers. Can Christians... Um, uh, serve in government roles, or should Christians? As we we've actually talked about this, should Christians even vote? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for one of the reasons why this comes up, um, in you know, in a nutshell, is the question of holding on to power and what that might mean in the context of New Testament Christianity. So, uh, again, I'm not. I'm not articulating that for purposes of of flying my own flag, but I don't know that it's fair to just assume that uh, a statesman, you know, is somewhat equal to a Christian or, uh, you know, if a statesman is a, is a moral person, then that Christian would be a perfect example of that. I'm not sure that they necessarily oh, go together. So you just want to give voice to the, a number of Christians who feel that participation in state apparatus is just off the table. Yeah. And I think, I think the listener brings that to bear a little bit because they asked, what about Jimmy Carter? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so what the, the listener brings up this beautiful example of wanting um, their daughter to have met Jimmy Carter it was an opportunity to meet Jimmy Carter, and the listener is not. I'm, it appears is not really inclined to um, agree politically with Jimmy Carter and accounts him as a poor president, but was very eager for their daughter to meet Jimmy Carter because he's a good man, and so this the listener is parsing out. 
the difference between Jimmy Carter, the citizen, Jimmy Carter, the Christian from Jimmy Carter, the statesman and saying that in the statesman context, terrible or wondering whether it's how, how to parse this out. Is Jimmy Carter a terrible statesman, but a good Christian? And how do you do that? Right. And I think the person was also um, asking us, do don't we care to assign any value to how good of a man he was and how great his faith influenced his perceived role as president? Does that not rescue any of our opprobrium for him? Did it you might, catch that? It might in the West. Did, no, but did you catch that in the in the, our listeners' oh, right, email? Right, right, did you, right, right. Do you agree with me that that's a yeah. part of the question? Okay. Yeah, okay, I hear that. Yeah. And this is where Scott and I divide sharply. So Scott, why don't why don't you answer her email question and then I'll answer it. You know, uh, Cole, I teach leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach in our doctoral program on leadership, and one of the you know it's we. Leadership is now a part of the social sciences. It's something that's explored through the lens of social science and the tools of social science. Uh, And so when my students are first being introduced to some of the theories and some of the empirical uh, literature related to leadership, they get the idea that it's only been studied for the last, you know, 50 years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I oftentimes have to remind them this is an ancient conversation. You know, the empirical conversation is recent. But, um, you know, as you know, the classics, the, the classic Hellenists and, and Roman philosophers are wrestling with the definition of what leadership is. You know, Polydor Virgil is trying to figure out why it is that Henry V is a great king and Henry VI isn't you know, trying to defend, uh, parsing out the difference between the two. Even Machiavelli's The Prince is kind of a, a treatise on how to be a leader. It's within a particular paradigm, but it's that's the that's the concern is how to be a how to be an effective leader. Mm-hmm. So this is a perennial conversation and an ancient conversation that exists long before democracy. The reason I think that's important to bring up is that concepts of leadership and what good leadership is evolve and change over time. Our culture tends to think in rather negative terms about transactional leadership. We tend to be even suspicious in the American context of uh, charismatic leadership but in other parts of the world, charismatic leadership rules the day. And I guess m- my point is um, leadership is oftentimes defined and measured by the followers, not necessarily by some standard of objectivity or some, some careful parsing of uh, terms. It's oftentimes down to what people want, what the followers want. (laughs) Right. And that can be very scary to somebody who believes, you know, from maybe a more positivist lens that there is some definition of good leadership or some definition of good statesmanship. Um, I think people 
I think leaders oftentimes reflect the desires of the people. And when the people's desires are for capital improvement, then leaders who leaders will rise up who promise capital improvement. When people are afraid of their neighbors, leaders will rise up who will resonate with that fear. When people want security, leaders will rise up who um, promise security, sometimes at terrible costs. And so I, I think it's a little bit artificial to come up with some positivist definition of what makes a statesman a statesman without taking into consideration that what makes a statesman a statesman is the follower. Uh, even, even in a dictatorship, that dictatorships exist because the people have willed them to. That is fascinating. I think we could have a whole podcast episode on that statement. Well, what I'm doing here is shifting away from this, the statesman and to the people. I, I think people defy, I think the people, even historically, even in the historical, through the historical lens, we, def, we, uh, Henry V, in terms of England's great kings, Henry V is up there, man. He's, he's the one who delivered the Battle of Agincourt. And it's, and it's difficult to understand Henry V as a despot as a dictator, as somebody who went and and took his men to Agincourt almost a certain death for his own glory. But see, the people understood that as their glory too, and so history treats him differently than we would treat him if he were to show up today. We would reject that we would reject that kind of behavior in an instant. But when he says to England, we've got to get France back, what he actually should be saying is, I need France back. <laughs> but the people here, we need it. And they respond mm-hmm. to the we. It satisfies some sense of need. Okay, so I hear you saying there is no objective standard for what makes a good leader, and particularly for our purposes, a good political leader that we are taught as in our culture and as children and in schools and in civics classes and so forth that we then hold up to people on the ballot and say who measures up the best. Right, right. So, if, you know, if a states if a statesman is somebody who's effective or if a statesman is somebody who is moral or if a statesman is somebody who um, comports themselves well in office, I mean, the listener brought up the idea of a kind of a Venn diagram that I think is a brilliant idea of kind of trying to say, where does character overlap with with effectiveness and where does that overlap with comportment? And, you know, how do you bring these elements together to kind of triangulate this, the, some semantic feature of statesmanship, but that changes immediately when you leave our cultural context and go into some other cultural context, it becomes very, very different very quickly. So bearing all that, all those things you just said, in mind, because you said quite a mouthful that I'm sure our listeners are going to think about. Let's talk about where you and I differ. Go ahead. I love it. Well, no, I, I expect you to start with Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's, um, your, it's your go-to. Because I think he's a great statesman? Yes. And you can't figure out why I think he's a great statesman. 
Well, no. You think he's a great statesman who is not a good president, whose policies you disagreed with vehemently, but you thought he was a great statesman and a good leader. Yeah. I know, and I actually mean that that makes him a great president. Okay, we'll talk about that a minute. But I can disagree with his policies easily and still say he's a great president. Okay. When I think about what makes a great leader... There are three elements that I'm, I'm, I'm going to typically look for. One are the outcomes. Um, not so much the principles, but, but did, they, did they do what they were supposed to have done? And the second is related to that, which is the followership. Or did the follower receive the benefit that they were that they were looking for. The third thing I think is really valuable for me in thinking about what makes a good leader is whether they operate for the sake of their own good or whether they function for the, for the good of the state. Let me rephrase that. Whether they, this, I'm going to sound like Alan Dershowitz here for a second, but whether they, they act for what they believe is in the best interest of the state. Okay. Uh, So, if if you are a, a Republican, you believe, especially if you're a conservative Republican, you believe that it is in the best interest of the state to reduce taxes and to do that uh, in ways that open opportunity in the market for the wealthy to become wealthier, but uh, in the case of Ronald Reagan, believe that that has a trickle-down effect for other people. I disagree a thousand percent. But if you are Ronald Reagan, that's what you believe. And if you operate in accordance with that belief, I admire that. It's not transactional. He has a value system that he's operating from. And so he, I think he did, I think he pulls those three things together very, very well. Um, and I think he was effective at using rhetoric in its largest definition, in its broadest definition. He was effective at using rhetoric to, um, to persuade people, um, uh, to, to charm the followers, to affect his goals as he articulated them um, to honestly reach for the, uh, the promises that he made to his, to the electorate. Um, so I think, I think it's called, I think it's difficult to call him two faced, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he was who he said he was going to be. You know, let me interrupt here. I think that is a really smart insight, Scott, and that is even whether you live in Washington, D.C., or whether you live next door to Ronald Reagan's um, other home that was not in D.C., where did he live? Was it California? California, Uh uh-huh. Okay. Or whether you lived in the Keys of Florida, as far away as you could get, if you understood that he was trying as hard as he could to put the state first, by which I mean the United States, there is a quality of that in a human 
that you admire, no matter what, what, no matter how the policies affect you, even if it's just a little bit, I think you're really onto something there. It's, it's a mark can, of, yeah. I, it's it, how I can say he's a great president, and so is Barack Obama. Okay, they were consistent according to the vision that they had cast. Look. Barack Obama did not pull the wool over your eyes when it comes to health care. He told us what he wanted to do when he in, up until 2008 when he was running uh, for the office. He told you he wanted to revamp health care. That's why you voted against him. One of many, many reasons. <laughs> no, but I'm saying then when he does it, it's hard to say, well, that's not statesmanlike. He said this is what he was going to do. The people voted for him to do it, and he did it. So that makes that that there is a, a nobility of statesmanship for me that's represented there in the same way as when Ronald Reagan says, you know, uh, we're going to shut down. Um, uh, we're going to a government that that governs least governs best, and then when the when the um, air traffic controllers strike, he says, fine, you're all fired. It's consistent. I don't like that, it, but he is a was, statesman. That was such a great moment, by the way. I was alive at that time, as you were, mm-hmm. and that was such a dramatic moment. Okay, I'm sorry, that was just, that was free. Well, I don't like it, but I, it's impossible to say that's different from how he represented himself to the people when he was trying to get their vote. Let me respond by by telling the listeners where I depart from that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, we still need you to do yours. Yeah. By the way, just I, I sometimes feel that listeners, in fact, some of the feedback I get is, why do you not say this when that person says that? Well, it would be impossible for us to respond to everything that we think right. while the other person is talking. I do want to say, though, that Ronald Reagan never used the expression trickle down ever, ever. He never described what he said as trickle down. He said, you grow the economy and it, it benefits everyone, which is true. Uh, that is a true statement in my mind. I just anytime I hear someone say Ronald Reagan and trickle down, I want to say that. I think that uh Uh, And I'm going back now to our listener's email who says, well, what about Jimmy Carter? Surely you can admit that he was a great man. And, you know, I can tell you where I admire Jimmy Carter. For a man to say on national TV, I have never committed adultery except that I have lusted in my heart, which is a very narrow way to condemn yourself and that resonates with Bible-reading Christians who understand what he means, but the rest of the country sure doesn't know what that means. That is astonishingly transparent. And I, I, was, I was amazed at that amount of whew, fortitude that he would have to say, I'm being interviewed and I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. That I'm amazed at. I do think... Um, that the question of what kind of, uh, do I want to elect a, a person who is a good person who will be a good statesman is, are you ready for this word? Irrelevant. And I'll tell you why. And I will use a quote 
from the great economist of the 20th century, Milton Friedman, to explain. It's a very short quote that he said uh, in an interview one time, and it, it goes like this. It's nice to elect the right people, but that isn't the way you solve things. The way you solve things is to make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. End of quote. And Wait, I see, think see that again. It's nice to elect the right people, but that isn't the way you solve things. The way you solve things is to make it politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. Hmm. This is a statement about incentives and how we uh, how we write policy to set up incentives that whether you put Quintilian himself as president of the United States or a monkey that the that the incentives being followed, which is what humans do. So I shouldn't say a monkey, whether you put Quintilian himself as president of the United States or Larry down the street, who's never been in politics, the incentives will line up in such a way that they will be followed by the human who is there. Because as you said a moment ago, um, and I, I was secretly agreeing with you, can't wait to, to tell you about it, which is right now, people follow incentives. And the largest incentive people have is to please their constituents and get reelected. Or if it's their last term, uh, to please their constituents and pave the way for the next, constitu- uh, the next leader from your party to, to go right in. And it is, in fact about following incentives, and we should make sure that the right incentives are set up through policy. So we voters need to be informed citizens who want to vote for the people who will vote for the policies that set up the right incentives. So whether you get a bully, self-centered, loudmouth who wants to skirt around Congress or a very charismatic person whom people love, but who does not understand the first rule of economics, no matter who is in there, the incentives lead that person to do the right things. So I really, that's why the reader's comment to us, the listener's comment to us was not, um, it's something I, I don't think about very often because I'm not looking for the best most moral upstanding person or the person I consider to be most in love with state service or most committed to being consistent to his or her worldview because his or her worldview contains incentives toward pleasing him or herself that are apart from the Constitution. I want the person who is going to follow the correct incentives and who when he or she says, I will follow the Constitution of the United States, actually means those are the incentives I'm going to follow. How about those apples? You're asking for a leader who has the virtue to honestly follow the Constitution, to honestly react to the proper set of incentives. It is virtue whether you want it to be or not. Honesty doesn't enter into it. No, it does. Because here's the thing is... If if the incentives are to murder six million Jews, then the Constitution's monstitution. Six million Jews are going to be murdered. 
Well, Scott, if he says, if you vote for me, I'm going to murder six million Jews, you would say, well, he did what he said. No, 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 so no, he, no, 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 no. It's not, that's not everything. But I'm Well, then, I'm, no, 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 no. Neither is, neither is the incentives that involve extra United States constitutional law. My, my point being, it's not, he, that in your definition, he's not merely responding to incentives. You're asking him to follow the Constitution, which is not always responding to incentives. Let me see if I can elaborate a little bit that will explain. Okay. We the people, via a representative republic, where we elect the people who make the laws, we should be in charge of setting up government and policies in such a way that whoever is there will get there because he or she followed incentives that we have set up to become a popular leader and statesman. Okay, I can hear that. That is a vertical integrated state, a vertically integrated state that we have participated in. You're not in the same room, so you can't see my waving hand. (laughs) We have set it up and we have said you can't set up single payer health care because we that violates all the things that got you here in the first place. I didn't set that up, Cole. No, people. So other people did. You're going to say, though, and I, I can let me make your argument for you. OK, the the reason we got a president who talked so much about single payer health care and about changing the health care system he is because single payer health care. But go ahead. Uh, well, under his breath, he did. My friend, um, <laughs> the, you're going to say the reason we got that leader is because he was responding to the incentives of people who want that system in their country, right? Yes. And I'm going to say, yes, that's why we are in error. We have falsely set up a system where people, we have not held our leaders accountable. We have allowed leaders to say, if you put me in office, I will give you other people's things and other people's money. And we, and the, the, the United States has responded to that without um, storming the government and burning down the White House. And you're right. You are correct to say we have that leader because that's who we wanted. And I will agree that that is why we are here today. And that is why we need to pare back and go the other way. We need, I, I need to start paying very close attention to how my people are making laws and get back to having people who make laws that set up the right incentives, lest we keep getting people who try to enact single-payer health care. But when that happens, if I pushed a button and had everyone in place and they're voting for leaders and policy, I don't think it takes someone who is, quote, a good statesman or, quote, a moral person to follow the incentives we've set up to make good policy. First of all, I want to make it clear that I didn't get to vote on whether the Constitution should be the Constitution or not. It was handed to us. And so there is a way in which we have, we as people have assented to the rule of the Constitution. Or not. But the way we have assented to bastardizations of the Constitution. But my point being that if we no longer assent to it, that's our choice. Correct. So my my point being I listen I'm with you on the on incentives 
I think you're right when you're talking about incentives. I think what's what's confounding to me is to say incentives and constitution because now you've added another uh, another force which is the force force of orthodoxy. Well, I tried to add the force of the market of sentiment because I think that I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, but the market of sentiment among my people which is not a very effective force on the market, by the way, at this time. Libertarians are a small group of people. But we're the ones saying, if you do not behave, leader, um, in constitutional ways, then we will fire you and we will put a new leader in place. So that leader does have uh, the incentive to, uh, to please the people who want constitutional law. Yeah, I can hear that. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Incentives. That makes sense I, to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I keep coming back to though. I mean, you know, a statesman has to be. We're going to have to have a definition that is broader than a libertarian definition, don't you think? Otherwise, statesman is only Ron Paul, or Rand Paul in many cases. Well, um, a statesman who and I think you're saying then a libertarian view of statesman is someone who embraces that the liberty-minded view. Yeah, I, and and we may it may take years and years um, for there to be a libertarian of a, a libertarian force on the market of sentiments that changes things. But Scott, I tell you what, man, um, I do, I read a lot of stuff happening and and not everything I read is my own echo chamber of like-minded people, but I think, I think liberty-minded citizens are, I think it's a growing movement. And I don't think it's growing leaps and bounds, but I think more and more people, and I'm surprised to say more and more people in their 20s are saying, we're not happy with Democrats. We're not happy with Republicans. We want something else. And it's not the Green Party. <laughs> it's this party of people who keep talking about liberty. I, I'm encouraged by how those voices are no longer considered nut jobs, but are considered people who have something to say. This is the thing is that, okay, I can, I can get behind that if you're going to say that statesman is defined contextually, but I still don't understand how that definition works in Cuba. I don't understand how that definition works in Zambia. I don't understand how that definition works in South Korea. In other words, that if, if we're talking about statesmen in its historic context and, and, you know, even even in this Western context, you've you found a definition of statesman that neatly ties to your own political preferences, but doesn't take into consideration the broader definition, even within the United States, let alone historically or cross-culturally. Well, then I haven't I haven't been very articulate. Let me add thirty seconds to all the stuff I said at the beginning. Okay. Uh, the the Greek and Roman tradition of statesmen included uh, the ideal statesman 
was a great orator who had the community in mind when he or she, well, when he, in this case, when he gave persuasive speeches and presided in legal courts and mm-hmm. presided, presided in political court, then a good statesman did, was not merely someone who was accomplished in rhetoric, but who was accomplished in rhetoric for the good of the community. So I, I didn't mean to leave that out. I just may, may not have articulated it. And, and what I'm trying to do is to build a real quick bridge to 2020 and say, in this country, we argue about what that, quote, good for the community means. Right. Oh, I can hear that. I can hear that. Okay. So what you're saying right. is, and the good of the country is X. And so therefore, that's how you define statesmen is they whether they met X. Right. And Got I think it. Democrats have a vision and Republicans have a vision of what what defining X is. And libertarians have the least important one. You know, they have the least number of chains on that person. Well, is is, is our libertarian president faithful to his wife or is he a chain smoker or is he, you know, well, that's a shame for him. But does he follow the Constitution and put liberty first and let people do what they want to do? Um, That is a libertarian's concern. So this is so where this gets to ultimately for the listener. You and I have talked about this a lot of times. Uh, outside of the podcast. But where this ultimately gets to is that Cole and I have very different definitions of statesmen because uh, I can have, I can define Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama as statesmen, but you can't. No. Right. By the way, you know who else I can define as statesmen? George Bush. Yep. I knew you were going to say that. Say, Say why for a minute. Uh, also, John McCain, who at his funeral, I wept. Uh, it was on TV, and I, I, it did. It brought me to tears because of the. I think statesman is the only the only noun that that works for the feelings that I had uh, during his funeral. Also, George Bush's funeral, and guess what? Not Bill Clinton for me. Bill Clinton trampled on the civil rights of an individual citizen and was impeached for it and should have been removed for office for it. So I'm not uh, <laughs> my my lack of partisanship goes both directions. Right. You are uh, consistent comes, in that way. Yeah. When it comes to this. So it's not that I happen to just like some conservatives. I also reject a number of liberals on the same grounds. So. Yeah. So it and the other thing is, I can think about statesmen outside of the context of the United States because um, I think uh, I think my definition is broad enough to consider other cultures and other times and other political systems. Yes, and I I, I think if you looked in other countries and other times and saw people who um, about whom you would say. Um, he took his service to the state seriously and tried very hard to put first what he and the community considered the good of the community. I, I think that's a fine way to think of someone. Well, you know, you said something earlier that I want to, to just revisit for a moment because I don't know if if you believe, believe it after what you said later. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I, I like this. You said that people are skeptical of charisma 
and you know maybe the intelligentsia of of a nation but i think people are just hook line and sinker swept up in charisma i think that explains the love for several of our most recent presidents including bill clinton and barack obama people they were not nearly as interested in the policies they were talking about as they were in the charismatic nature and I would even say that about Ronald Reagan, too, especially after Carter. Um, people were romanced, if that's an appropriate word, by their charisma. So I don't think they're skeptical enough. So I, um, I failed to uh, define what I meant by charisma. So there is a theory of charismatic leadership that defines charismatic leadership as uh, able to move people in a direction um, to solve a particular problem at a particular time. So um, charismatic leadership is, is difficult, difficult to kind of pinpoint in part because it has to do with this charisma, with this ability to, um, to interact with the, the pathos of the audience that is a big part of it. But the other big part of it is um, to address a particular problem in a particular context. Okay. You were using a bit different definition than, a, than the standard one. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm using the charismatic leadership theory definition. I, and I, I can't remember who coined it. But um, <laughs> uh, so I, I think charismatic leadership is more specific than just uh, – it may be more than giving people the vapors uh, and uh, charismatic leaders are oftentimes those who identify a problem and offer a solution at a particular time. And then they're able to persuade a large group of people to it. So it's one thing to say, and it's, and it's way, it's frustrating. It frustrates me when you say that Barack Obama just promised a, a people a whole bunch of stuff and they like stuff. So that's how he got popular. That's not, what happened? I mean, you can say that he articulated a problem with health care, uh, for example. He pro articulated a problem with health care and convinced people that he could provide a solution. That is charismatic leadership. And frankly, that's exactly what Ronald Reagan did. I mean, charis charisma was not about personality. Charisma was about personality and objective. It's just that the objective is usually understood in those moments as a problem that needs a solution um, and that resonates that the people identify as a, or the followers rep, uh, identify as a, a solution that need, a, a problem that needs a solution immediately. Well, and I would I would add that Barack Obama did not only talk about health care. He also in his campaigning said, you know, if you vote for me, then the middle class is going to, frankly, have a better life. The others, the people who are, quote, left behind or whatever, they're going to see their quality of life go up. You know, and that is not as specific as health care, but that is also a promise of you're going to have a materially better path forward. So but, I'm, I, I'm, but, but here's the thing, Cole. He resonated not just with the poor people. It's not just poor people who voted for him. That's correct. Because many, he had of us, other many of us who have means say that's a problem that needs a solution. So it's not just that he told people, I'm going to give you a chicken in every pot and I need a chicken 
and uh, <laughs> in my pot. That's not the way it worked. What happened Correct. is he identified a problem and convinced people like me that it needed a solution. That's how you were persuaded to vote for him. That's how many of uh, many of his many of his voters were college educated important yes. people. That's right. And I, I'm not saying that his claim to raise the material benefit of the classes of people necessarily is why every single person voted for him. I'm, I'm saying that it was not all about health care. And oh, I, yeah, gave, yeah, as, yeah, 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 and I yeah. gave as an example that other one. Yeah. Um, I think, Cole, I think this conversation is, uh, is so valuable in part to illustrate that we're we're operating with different definitions of what statesman means, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I I think that's in and of itself a valuable observation for us to make. And maybe maybe we don't walk away with a definition of what statesman is, but maybe we walk away realizing that um, in in the public discourse we end up talking around one another often. Um. You know, or I, or I, I might say, I think X, I think person X was a great president and um, someone else may be confused as to why in the world you could say that. Right. How can you be a good person and think so and so is a great president um, and vice versa that, you know, if I may, if I'm if I say I I'm talking as somebody who probably agrees with most of what was going on in Jimmy Carter's head that he was a bad president. Or an ineffective president, I'm sure a lot of a lot of my friends would say, "I don't understand how you could say that because mm-hmm. um, you know wasn't he a good person?" And so you know we end up talking about different parts of the uh, that Venn diagram and and focusing on different because we we all have a may have a very different definition of what we're talking about when we talk about that kind of concept. Or, Which is also true of citizenship and Christianity. Oh right, right, and and I was going to say. Not only do we have a different definition of what statesman, or at least a complicated way to explain it, but we also have different levels of importance it rises to in our discussion of Christian citizenship. Yeah. I want to say something here in in reference to this part of the conversation. Uh Uh-oh. No, 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 no. This is, I'm going to brag about you uh, uh, pretty hardcore here for a second. Oh, okay. I think the, the Christian having this discussion has a responsibility to approach our neighbor with a level of empathy. What I mean by that is I think it's important to um, to try and figure out what my neighbor thinks, not so I can argue them out of it, but just to understand them at a deeper level. Right. And to note that, whoa, okay, that's important to my neighbor. That's important to my friend. That's important to my brother. Uh-huh.